Lord, on this day we do celebrate that you have fully revealed yourself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. And as we can look at the continued work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and through our lives, we ask that you would teach us new truths this day, Holy Spirit. And that in so doing, Lord, we would know you, follow you with wholehearted devotion in our day, and you would spark revival through us as we seek to follow you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The infamous bank robber Jorge Rodriguez operated along the Texas border around the end of the 19th century. He was so successful into his journeys into southern Texas that he was assigned an extra posse by the Texas Rangers. They went out after him in droves. And so late one afternoon... As Jorge escaped across the Rio Grande, a Texas Ranger was able to follow him at a distance, unbeknownst to Jorge. So they followed him back into Jorge's hideaway village, saw him go into his favorite cantina, and he said, I got him. So the Ranger walked into the cantina like a good Texas Ranger does whipped out his Colt 45, cocked it and put it in the back of Jorge Rodriguez's head and said, Jorge Rodriguez, you're going to come with me and you're going to turn all the money that you've stolen from the great state of Texas. Do this now or die. The problem is Jorge didn't speak a lick of English. <laughs> so a busboy ran over to the ranger and said, Senor, Senor, Jorge no speak English. I do. I can translate for you. He said, okay, tell him what I just said. And so nervously, Jorge responded and said, tell the big Texas cowboy that I've hidden all the money at the well on the north side of town. If you go to the southeast side of the well, count five bricks down, there's a loose brick. It's all there. He can have it. All the money is behind it. Please, little boy, tell him quickly. The little translator assumed a solemn look and said to the ranger in perfect English, Jorge Rodriguez is a very brave man. He says he's ready to die. Mm. Teaching the lesson that what you don't know can surely hurt you, right? This is why the church puts these great feast days in to the church calendar. You know, how many of you thought, oh, great, it's Trinity Sunday, yay, right? I know you did. You woke up this morning, it was raining. You said, I gotta go, really? But the reality is, what we don't know can hurt us. And God has given us this great truth to answer that question, who is God? So welcome to Trinity Sunday, friends, where we launch into the sex mix, next six months of mission, outreach, discipleship for ourselves, as well as making disciples of others, starting with our families, starting with our church family and others.
And in its wisdom, the early church wanted the universal church to answer that question, who is God? Because so many heresies come from a misunderstanding of the Trinity. For the answer to the question, who is God, is found in your belief of the Trinity. Because if you ask the typical person on the street, what are you religion-wise? I'm a Christian. Okay, what's the Trinity? It usually goes no more than, uh, God is three in one. Well, you know, that is a shampoo, right? You know, it is. It's a shampoo, you know? So you've just described a shampoo, now what is God? And so we're going to dive into this, and then we're going to look into John 16 to see the continued work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we walk in the fullness of God, Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit. Because there's two extremes that go on here with, with, as it relates to the Holy Spirit. You have that one extreme which says, well, it's all a mystery. We can't understand it. It doesn't matter. Then you get the other extreme which says, well, there's no real content behind the belief of the Trinity, and therefore I'm free to make it up how I want to make it. I'll make, I'll make up my own religion, basically. You know, and what you need to understand is that your Muslim neighbor knows exactly what the Christian understanding of the Trinity is, and they think it's veiled polytheism. Okay, they think it's, oh, you guys don't worship one God, you worship three gods. But our belief of the Trinity is foundational and it's distinctive among all worldviews, my friends. So it's important that we fully understand it as we go out on mission. So the doctrine of the Trinity is the belief that God is one in being and three in person. One in being, three in person. It's not a contradiction. It would be a contradiction if I said he's one in being and three in being. That's a contradiction. All right? So you ask, well, what's the difference between a being and a person? Being is that quality, that essence, or that substance, whatever term you want to use for it, which makes you what you are. Being is is that essence, quality, substance that makes you what you are. Person is that essence, quality, or substance that makes you who you are. Okay? So, for example, what am I in my being? <laughs> Thank you for your confidence. <laughs> I'm not an alien, I promise, All right? And I'm not a quokka. You ever seen a quokka? It's an Australian animal off the coast of Perth. They have no natural predators. They're the happiest animals on the face of the planet, all right? So I had a, a younger person today, you're a quokka. I go, I am not a quokka, although I would like the life of a quokka because it's in beautiful location, and they have natural predators, and they take pictures with humans, happily so. Because they have no natural predators, and they live longer than any other animal on the face of the planet, I guess. I don't know, it's amazing. So I'm not a quokka. I am a human being, as are you. In your being, we are human. But that answers what I am. Who I am is Gene Sherman, the, the 
son of Wes and Ann Sherman, the husband of Kim Sherman, the, the father of Rebecca, Zachary, Benjamin, and Daniel Sherman. But you see, being in person are not the same thing. We share our being, not our person. And so therefore, I am one being, one person, as are you. God is one being, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and there's nothing like him anywhere in the universe. God is God. He can choose to reveal himself how he chooses to reveal himself. And there is a sense of mystery in this. But I share that with you because our statement of faith, the Anglican 39 articles, this was so important to the English reformers that right out of the box, the very first article was about the Trinity. Because they knew if you don't get this right, you're not going to get anything else right. And so here's what our statement of faith says about the reality of the Trinity. There is only one living and true God who is eternal and without body, indivisible and invulnerable. He is of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness. He is the maker and preserver of all things, both visible and invisible. Within the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons who are one substance, power, and eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? You know, I encourage you to get familiar with that. I don't have it memorized. Obviously, I usually stick with the one in being, three in persons argument at Jake's. It's kind of simple. You know, when people say three in one, that's a shampoo, you know. Um, but that is worth putting to memory, because that, that is one of the greatest, and I was told that by Dr. John Warwick Montgomery in Strasbourg. He said, I love the 39 articles. I go, why? Because you guys start in the right place. You know, the Trinity. And it's the best statement in Christendom. I go, oh, okay. That's spoken by a Lutheran, by the way. All right? So that's important. So if we turn our Bibles to John 16, we're going to continue. Because of God in his fullness has expressed himself, we see the Trinity in this section of John 16 as Jesus is with the disciples in the upper room preparing to go to the cross, he gives them some encouraging words to talk about what the Holy Spirit does to us and through us as his followers. Okay? So let's look at this. Just verses 8 to 11. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And my friends, if we don't understand this, we misunderstand it to our peril. So let's look at this. The Holy Spirit working to us and through our ministry to others concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So let's look at this. First, our sin. But before we get there, in verse 8, the word translated convict means to cross-examine with the first of convincing someone. He does not simply convict the world, but he shows what is lacking in the knowledge of what sin and righteousness really are. Okay? So how does the Holy Spirit do convict the world? Well, first, he convicts the world concerning sin because they did not believe in me. Verse 9. 
The Holy Spirit brings the guilt of our sin home to the human consciousness so men and women will seek relief through the mercy of God. We see this in our readings last week in Acts. In Acts chapter 2, regarding the day of Pentecost, the disciples had been gathered for many days, waiting upon the Holy Spirit to fill them. And when that happened, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and he addressed them. And he said, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. And amid accusations of drunkenness, Peter preached one heck of a sermon, didn't he? And 3,000 people came to faith in Jesus Christ just in that day. And he concluded that message with these words. Acts 2, 36 and 37. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? That's a pretty amazing response. I've never had anybody say to me, Gene, what should I do when I tell them the good news of the gospel? All right? Peter's eloquence or argument had absolutely nothing to do with it. The convicting power of the Holy Spirit elicited these reactions. So if Peter had preached the same message the day before, nobody would have believed him. But the listeners' hearts were pierced unto salvation, and that's the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. So we need to understand that whole conviction thing first. Great story about Moody Church in Chicago. Uh, R.A. Torrey was the pastor of Moody Church in the early 20th century. And he tells how, the, in his book entitled The Holy Spirit, how his board of elders were meeting. And back then, they met every Friday night. They ate dinner together. They prayed together. And one, one Friday night, they discussed business. The next Friday night, they discussed pastoral care. The next Friday night, they discussed something else, the other aspect of the church. But there was one... Friday night, when a particular elder drew attention to a concern. And he said this, Brethren, I am not all satisfied with the way things are going in our church. We're having many professed conversions and yet little fruit. But I do not see the conviction of the sin that I believe is of biblical Christianity. I would propose that instead of discussing business matters, we spend this time in prayer and then we meet on other nights also to cry to God to send his Holy Spirit among us with his convicting power. So the elders consented. They began to pray together in other evenings. And not long after that first meeting, one particular Sunday, Dr. Tory rose up to preach and seated in the front row of the Prue at Moody Church was a notorious mafioso running a back back um, room gambling house. And after church that day, the man came up to him and said, I don't know what's happening to me. I feel awful. He revealed how that afternoon, the day Saturday before, he'd been out walking and saw an open air meeting, tent meeting in Chicago. So he went into the meeting and among the participants was a man with whom he had fairly associated in the mafia with. He stopped in to listen, 
it was very unimpressive. And then he went on his way. But he went about 100 yards down the street and he felt moved to return to the meeting. So he goes, after the meeting, he was invited to Moody Church the next day. He said, oh, I don't know what's the matter with me. I've never felt like this before. I feel absolutely awful. And he was trembling as he's talking to Dr. Tory. Dr. Tory bravely said to this guy who could have him you know, taken out in a moment's notice, I'll tell you what's the matter with you. You're under the Holy Spirit's conviction. And he's convicting you of your sin. That powerful man, trembling with great emotion, that person who ran a gambling house, had never set foot in a Bible-believing church ever, knelt and cried out to God for mercy that day. He left shortly after with the joyous realization that all his sins were forgiven. Because, as Jesus says, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin. See, the average unbeliever does not look on his unbelief in Jesus as a sin. But if one is under the Spirit's conviction, that's the primary focus. And only the Holy Spirit can bring such a conviction. And if you are sensing your unbelief in any way this morning, you're sensing your sin before him, grace is at work in you. So listen up and pray as you've never prayed before. For Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5, 3. You could reword that to say how blessed are those who seek see their spiritual bankruptcy for they will see their need and ask Jesus to take them to heaven. It was Blaise Pascal who said, men and women are great insofar as they realize how wretched they are. You see, you really only need two things in order to come to the new life of Jesus Christ. One, you need to see your sin for what it is. And secondly, you see the righteousness of Christ that he provides for you in Jesus Christ. Which is the second point here. Grasping the righteousness provided in Christ is that second convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 10, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. See, the world has a relative view of righteousness, right? Uh, like ascending degrees on a thermometer. You know, a guy who's in jail has about 20% righteousness with about 80% rottenness, right? That's the way people think. Then most of us, you know, have a little more righteousness, possibly up to 50. And then those really holy people like Tim Keller and D.A. Carson, you know, they're up there like 90%. And God's 100%. And you see, the logical outcome of this very Western way to view of righteousness has the unfortunate assumption that there is a degree of righteousness that is acceptable to God. And if man attains it, he will attain heaven. Kent Hughes calls that the Avis syndrome. Remember Avis, the rental car company? Are they still around? I don't even know if Avis is still around. I think they are. Avis, we try harder. 
for years in the 70s and 80s. That was their advertising slogan. We try harder. But that's all that is. Jesus demonstrated an entirely new standard of righteousness. I mean, look at the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus makes repeated statements revealing the profoundness and depths of the inner righteousness necessary for us to have a right standing before God. And he did that to bring men and women to the end of themselves. The Beatitudes are at the same time extremely inspired, inspiring and altogether discouraging. After giving them, Jesus astounded his hearers by saying in verse 20 of chapter 5, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, that's a pretty discouraging pronouncement for a first century Jew who looked at the Pharisees and the scribes as spiritual superstars. The sum up of the Sermon on the Mount in Jesus' own words are, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The only righteousness acceptable to the kingdom is perfection. And so our Lord's teaching is vindicated when he was accepted back into the Father's presence. We see hints of that on verse 10 of chapter 16. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. When Almighty God raised Jesus from the dead, my friends, he was saying, this is the one I accept. And all men and women unlike him, I reject. The resurrection was historical evidence for us. It's history of the type of man or woman that God accepts. And the Holy Spirit convinces us that our own righteousness doesn't even come close. It's when we trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation and our eternity, the Avis syndrome is disintegrated. <laughs> because all ground is level at the foot of the cross and God provides for us his righteousness that we wear so we can pray like Paul in Philippians 3 that we may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith so my friends are we convinced of our sin? Are we convicted of our, of our righteousness before a fully righteous God? If so, we're saved. If not, you will be. Because if the Holy Spirit has convinced us of the first and second of righteousness, the third conviction is sure to follow. And we see that in verse 11 concerning judgment. Because the ruler of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit convinces the world that there is such a thing as judgment. That the judgment of Satan and the breaking of his power at the cross is proof of that judgment. When Jesus was on the cross, Satan threw everything at him that he could. But after dying for our sins, Jesus rose from the dead. And as Paul says in Ephesians 4, when Jesus ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In other words, his resurrection and ascension are a victory parade. 
It's the first of a long line of parade of his saints that are going after him. For Satan bruised Christ's heel, but Christ crushed Satan's head. And therefore, Christ now will bring judgment on, upon those who are part of this world system. But those of us who have placed our trust in Jesus Christ aren't part of the world system. That's the good news. And that's the kindness of God. And it's evidence of his mercy, which is like a hair trigger on a gun. He's quick to unleash it, my friends. And so, if this sounds harsh, you need to understand. Place your trust in Jesus. If it sounds like great news to you, hey, the Holy Spirit's at work. Praise God. Because the Holy Spirit convicts us of the ways of the world, the sin, the righteousness, judgment. It, and it's all His work. There's nothing I do at all to contribute to it. But amazing, while it's the Holy Spirit's job to bring conviction, because that's what the Holy Spirit does to us, praise be to God, He also does this ministry through us to everywhere we go where we live, work, and play. Amazingly, because look at verse 7 and 8. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Because these guys are going to build the church. We saw it last week. It's starting off with a bang. It's a beautiful thing when the Holy Spirit comes into the world through us and people recognize that He is the sovereign God. He can do anything that He wants. And His normal method of bringing conviction to the world is through believers. You know, as far as we know, the great agnostic uh, 19th century scholar Thomas Huxley never put his faith in Christ. But we have evidence that he was under conviction. Toward the end of the 19th century, he was at a guest at a house party in a country home. And as kind of was typical back in those days in England, uh, Sunday came along and most of the guests in the house decided they wanted to go to church. And as expected, Huxley didn't desire to go. But he did approach a man in this house guest party who was known to have a simple, but yet a radiant faith in Jesus. And he said to him, suppose you don't go to church today. Suppose you stay at home and you tell me quite simply what your Christian faith means to you and why you're a Christian. And this was a, a common day laborer guy, and he said, but Mr. Huxley, you could demolish my arguments in an instant. I, I'm not clever enough to argue with you. Huxley said gently, I don't want to argue with you. I just want you to tell me simply what this Jesus means to you. So he did. And when he had finished, Huxley was weeping. And he said, I would give my right hand if I could only believe this. Huxley had seen something of the spiritual realities through the life of a humble, spirit-filled believer who was willing to be used as that guy put a stone in Huxley's shoe that Huxley could never remove. That's our ministry, my friends. And it's reality for each and every one of us 
that God does to us and through us as we go through this Pentecost season. And it takes your breath away that God would use us in this work. You know, perhaps this was what was in Paul's mind in 2 Corinthians 3 when he wrote to the Corinthian church, you yourselves are our letters of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. To be used by the Lord in this way is, is not so much a matter of what we say, my friends, but it's who we are in this community. You know, when I was first dating Kimmy and I was away at school, I couldn't wait to receive a letter. So every day I walked to the student union and I opened up my box and when I got a letter from her, I didn't get two steps out of the post office in the student union without reading the entire thing. And I would read it, on, I, I, would, I would tuck it away, then I'd read it again on my way back to the dorm, and then I'd put it away in my textbooks that I had, and then later on that day, I'd read it again. Our lives are like that among our neighbors. They're reading it. And when our lives are properly arranged according to the Lord's way of doing life together, they convict men and women of the sin that is theirs, of the righteousness that may be theirs, and of the judgment that they can avoid. It's an astounding reality that was revealed by Jesus on the night before he went to the cross. And he intended it to bring comfort to his disciples. By virtue of the Holy Spirit, Jesus' convicting power would now be theirs as they went about their ministry. And my friends, it will be ours as well. Let's hold it. We've got an indefinite power of the Holy Spirit through lives slowed down. We've got to slow down to take hold of the power, to get plugged into the power station, right? That's it's an initiative which the vestry we're doing, we're intentionally trying to slow down, spend some time in the Word, spend some time in prayer, spend some time in service, praying that the Lord would use us throughout our work week because Sunday is not the mission, Sunday's for the mission, Okay? So that's the first step. Take your to-do list and take it and filter it through the lens of God's word and what needs to go. What is so important that's more important than your relationship with this God who loves you so? Secondly, we go out in ministry together. Another way he can go through us is to get equipped. And The book recommendation for summer 2019 Rosaria Butterfield's The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Now, I promise you, she's a great author. She writes so well. But you will read some of this and you'll say, I'm never doing that. Yeah, because you're not her. All right? We are who we are. But there's some great ideas about how we can open up our homes and we can labor where we work and where we hang out 
in a phenomenal way, and her ministry is bearing great fruit right where she is in Durham, North Carolina. So I encourage you, read it, chew on it. It'll be convicting in some ways, but it will bless you as you seek to follow Jesus this summer and fall. And another very easy way we can reach out is through our Greats Notes campaign that I mentioned last week. We've got about 10 boxes left. We had 50. Great start. Take a box, write your name and email down because it's starting this week. And you'll notice, once again, all the directions are right here. All you got to do is follow the directions once a week for the next eight weeks. Your barber, your hairstylist, the person at Giant Eagle, Heinz, at the pub you go to, you know, I, I write a simple note saying something like, thank you for your smile which truly encouraged me today. Your sense of humor made my day. May God bless you. Gene. Send it to the place of business. Next time you see him, hey, did you get my note? We give you the stamps. It can't be easier. We all can do this, my friends. It's just doing the Christian life in a different way together is synergistic as we go out into our world seeking to be a blessing and sharing this good news. So my friends, let's plug in to the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is interceding for us right now through the love of the Father. Three in one so that we may glorify this one true God now and for the rest of our days. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the blessing that it is to be your people. You, you've called us to yourself. You empower us to live. And you show us in love where we fall short and call us further up with you. And I ask, Lord, as, as you convict us and call us to yourself and to wear your righteousness, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who's had the Avis complex, that they would lay it aside and cast all their trust on the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And as we do that, we would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And go forth and get equipped. Not only through the summer, but going into the fall and discipleship groups and all kinds of opportunities that we will continue to have here at Christ Church so that you would receive the honor and glory, Lord, as each one of us is praying that we would reach one person over the next six months. And we would see, we beg of you to see that work in our midst. For in Jesus' name I pray, amen.